Oh, that you were yourself, but love, you are no longer yours than you yourself here live. Against this coming end you should prepare, and your sweet semblance to some other give. So should that beauty which you hold in lease find no determination, then you were yourself again after yourself's decease when your sweet issue, your sweet form, should bear. Who lets so fair a house fall to decay, which husbandry and honor might uphold against the stormy gusts of winter's day and barren rage of death's eternal cold? Oh, none but unthrifts. Dear my love, you know, you had a father. Let your son say so. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted Hast thou the master mistress of my passion A woman's gentle heart but not acquainted With shifting change as is false woman's fashion An eye more bright than theirs less false in rolling Gilding the object whereupon it gazeth A man in hue all hues and his controlling which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature as she wrought thee fell a doting, and by addition me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for woman's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. Hello, listeners. You're tuning into the Bardcast Weekly with Will Kemp's Players. You just heard Sonnet 13, performed by Ragliacci, and Sonnet 20, performed by me, Phil Beattie. Your hosts, as always, are myself, Rob Johnson, the aforementioned Phil. Hi. And Shay Fitzgerald. Hey, y'all. Sandra Boynton also joins us in conversation. Hello. And our spotlight artist this week is Victoria Benkowski. Hi, friends. Each week, we'll bring you some excerpts of Shakespeare scenes, or in the case of this week, six of his sonnets, followed by a lively discussion with some of our players on dramatic themes, relevance of work, and in particular this week, how sonnets can be studied as a work that isn't specifically dramatic. Vicky, since you are a special guest today, uh, let's start with you. So, where did you come about doing Shakespeare performance and the original practices met? Uh, well, I was first introduced to Shakespeare um, in my high school English class, much like everybody else in the United States. Uh, we read Romeo and Juliet, excerpts from Julius Caesar, things like that. Uh, there was a very small production of Titus Andronicus when I was maybe a sophomore um, that really piqued my interest. It was done at my high school. Um, and at that time, I mean, I knew nothing of original practices or Shakespeare the way that we know it now. Um, I got into a night, I got a nice real intro to Shakespeare and original practices at Schenectady County Community College with our own Sandra Boynton uh, and the drama program over there. RJ was my uh, first real experience with original practices and cue scripts and things like that. Um, I was fortunate and blessed to be a part of Measure for Measure, my first real uh, female Shakespeare lead, which was a lot, a lot of fun. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, Sandy got us all together. We formed camps. And I've been with you guys ever since. We've been doing original practices, and I've learned tons and tons and tons from the talented, talented people that are a part of our troupe. So, very cool. Glad to have you with us today. Um, we did have we did feature Vicky um, in our first episode. She was our performer who uh, uh, read the part of Titania, um, and we didn't get a chance to talk to her that day. So. We're happy to have her back this week um, to talk to us a little bit more, and we're very glad to have Sandy here as well. Um, the past couple episodes, we've had Sandy mentioned a lot, but now she's here in in with her full presence. <laughs> well, with just my voice, just my voice. Yes, well, yes, just your voice. But I mean, that's that's pretty much all how how all of us are here. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least you're equal. Um, 
So yeah, uh, let's get started. Sandy, we're talking about sonnets today. Uh, do you want to contextualize the history for us a little bit there? I'll, I'll try. Let's see what I can do. Sonnets are um, a very tight little specific form of poetry. They were first introduced into the world in Italy. They're an Italian early Renaissance form. They were sonnets are little songs. They're 14 lines long. In Italy, they have a specific form of rhyme scheme that follows the, um, the impetus of Petrarch, who wrote sonnets to his lady love, and very often would then write a cycle of sonnets, a number of poetic songs in praise of his lady. It became a poetic tradition in the Renaissance and was transferred to England in the early 16th century. Um, the English or Shakespearean or Elizabethan sonnet cycle is the same in that it is a, a series of little songs written in praise of one's lady love, but the form of the poem itself is different. In English, there are the, the poem is divided into four sections, three four-line sections or quatrains, and an ending couplet or two-line sections. Part of the reason of that is that it's easy to rhyme in Italian because everything ends in a vowel. Not so in <laughs> English. <laughs> that is very interesting. That's a really good point. So that the rhyme scheme is is different. In the Italian sonnet, it's A B B A, A B B A, and some combination of C D and E for the last six. We English doing A B B A is so hard. Oh yeah. Um, so in the in the English sonnet, we have the three quatrains, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, which gives us variety and accounts for the fact that we can't rhyme anything easily. Shakespeare's sonnets, the 154 of them collected into one semi-coherent collection, uh, <laughs> they don't really tell a single story. They don't aren't really about just a lady love. Um, but these sonnets, published first in a relatively cheap edition in 1609, pushed the thematic limits, the tone. These are not... These can be very bawdy. Um, they are love sonnets. Yes, they, they are love sonnets, but it can be a little more, how shall I say, visceral than Petrarch. Um, and if you're a student of English poetry, you can see this pushing toward the mid-17th century metaphysical poets who are looking to make very difficult but interesting comparisons between things one would not normally see as similar. Absolutely, yeah. I see a lot of that in the sonnets. I do too. Um, and is that a... Do you need any more information? Have I bored you enough with my academic stuff? No, hardly. That's great. I think this is offering... It's not yeah, boring. This is not boring to any of us. Um, it's... I think this is also the basics that any listener is going to have to understand before breaking them down. Absolutely, so yeah. People people don't necessarily know why the sonnets are significant. Um, so I guess if I'm hearing what you're saying, they're just a really good exemplification of the writing style of that era and uh, what at least many of the popular artists were leaning towards in terms of form and symbolism. Sure, but there's more to it than that. There's always more yeah, to it than sure. that. Oh, of um, course, yeah. One thing is, is that this is Shakespeare acting like a poet as opposed to a playwright. A poet was a high-class man of letters. Playwright, not so much. <laughs> Not so much. And so when you see Shakespeare in the latter part of the 16th century going about to publish 
poems, real poems, re instead of dramatic literature. Um, he was trying to make his mark as a classy poet rather than as an upstart crow. Uh, so that's just quite seriously. So, so he was trying to be both sides because it gets very confusing uh, in the playwriting and poetic world at the turn of the 16th into the 17th century. Young men who had gone to college but could not find a job in the professions turned to the exciting world of the theater to write. But they were in some ways going downward in class. Um, Shakespeare, who had what I would call, a, a, they called it a grammar school education, I would say it was the, the equivalent of our high school education or maybe community college education, was not as well educated as many of the poets. I, um, and yet there were other playwrights who had no formal education at all. In fact, the really educated one was Chris Marlowe. He had a master's degree. So it, it, it was all of that, but they were looked down upon in the literary world. So if you wrote real poems, and I'm putting that in quotes, then you had some pretension to art. Theater was not art. I mean, obviously. Well, it, but it wasn't. It was not considered great art. It was entertainment. I think one always ought to think about the brilliant Elizabethan theater as pretty good, pretty good HBO. Yeah, I really like that parallel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at the way, you know, TV somewhat interacts with the world today, especially the kinds of things that are available on HBO, it's it's absolutely art, but it's art from a very um, public uh, yep. opinion. There's a lot of diversity there. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, more, I guess, quote-unquote, alternative uh, frames of thinking and thought. Uh, but, yeah, so it's... I. I Exactly, it's not it's not an English department. No, no, it, it, and I would suspect that the uh, Elizabethan theater would be a good deal more boisterous than Netflix or HBO. Absolutely, yeah, that's a really good mm -hmm. point <laughs> for sure. Um, that's a really great summation, I guess, of of kind of why they're significant. Vicky, you had brought a lot of sonnets to the table today. What is interesting to you about all of them? I'm really intrigued to know kind of what themes were more resonant with you. Uh, well, as I was going through all of them, I purchased um, uh, the Arden when I was working down in Virginia. And I was like, ooh, sonnets. Okay, great. Perfect. It's like everything's here. I can just go through, like see what speaks to me. Um, I obviously love like, you know, all the lovey-dovey sonnets. Like who doesn't love love, am I right? Um, but really, I liked, I was drawn more towards um, the sonnets that were a little more intense, um, not just like in terms of love, but in terms of, for example, Sonnet 140, which is the one I ended up doing for this podcast, where uh, the speaker is speaking to his love, but like it's very clear that the relationship is over, but the person is, is kind of like threatening in a way, like don't leave me because I'm gonna go ham for ham. I'm gonna go nuts. Like, I need you, boo. Um, and I always, I always wondered, like, as I was going through these and reading them to my roommates and my boyfriends, um, so, like trying to pick, like, you know, the one, the best, the best one for, for meh. Um, I always wonder, like, you know, what's the other side of that? Uh, what's the other side of you know, whatever's going on. And I know, you know, not all of them are based on maybe things that were happening in Shakespeare's life at the time, but I'd like to think that, you know, maybe they were. And I think it's really interesting to, like, build a kind of little dramatic story for yourself in those lines. Yeah. Centering back on the dramatic story of things, Sandy, could you talk a little bit about the characters that are presented in this series of sonnets 
and how that all flows together? Well, I'll try. First of all, I think it's important to realize that we have no idea whether any of this was autobiographical or not. Not a bit of it. There's a ton of historical speculation about who the dark lady was and who the young man is and who the other poets might have been, but we don't have one piece of real evidence. It's just a lot of people wanting, just a lot of people wanting to psychoanalyze the poet and make his writing about his diary and his dirty linen. Um, what we have in the sonnets is the speaker of the sonnet, and I will not call that speaker Shakespeare, speaking to a beautiful young man some of the time uh, importuning him to marry and have children so that his beauty will not be lost. And there is a great deal of the sonnet cycle that is between the speaker of the sonnets and this beloved young man. Is it homosexual or homoerotic? Maybe. Um, but it is certainly appreciative of the beauty of a particular young man, and that, that seems to be a definite character. The other major character is the character called the Dark Lady of the Sonnets. She seems to be a woman of darker skin and darker hair who is probably having some sort of physical relationship with both the poet and the young man. Not going there. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Come on, Sandy. I don't know why that never stuck out to me. I knew about her relationship with the poet, but I don't... There's some indication that that, that's part of the the dispute. So it is very much a love triangle, yeah? Yes, Ah, or it can be read that way. Right. And finally, there's the there's the discussion of other poets who are doing the speaker of the sonnets wrong. And then there's the last two sonnets, mm-hmm. which really relate to Ovid and sort of seem tacked on. Ah, okay. That's okay. So. Um... Yeah, that's a lot going on there. I think the I think the elements with the young man are always what come across as very like titillating to people because of the fact that it's like, oh, it could be gay. But as we kind of discovered with Hamlet, there's a really fascinating amount of um, homosocial context to a lot of these writings in a way that I don't think a lot of our contemporary audience is used to seeing men relate that way in a way that is both like brotherly and also maybe sexual at the same time. Um, I know, Phil, I know you picked your sonnet uh, for that reason in particular, that interesting um, sort of gray area. So I would love to hear um, what you have to say about that. I, I just, it fascinates me really just to think that there's a whole section of his sonnets that people just don't know who it was written for about. I, I just think that's really interesting. I mean, <clears throat> Sonnet 20 just really sticks out to me because I think there's a lot of him playing with um, bringing up references of women, but at the same time, they could be things that could also refer to a manly relationship on more of a, like like we were talking about with him, like in more of a spiritual way that people in today's audiences wouldn't think of because men are not usually raised or brought up to think that they can be really good friends with someone and not be in a relationship with them if you know if you know what I'm talking about that's great Mm -hmm. I I think that's a really powerful assessment to make so in essence there's some like there's more masculine freedom in the way that Shakespeare and the speaker of the sonnets are talking about the ways in which they are relating to another man. Yeah. 
I mean, at least in, in my in my opinions. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very that's very much correct. Um, let me talk a little bit about this because it's it's fascinating. Um, you have yeah, to, I'd love to hear. You, you have to understand that homosexual behavior was punishable by death in Elizabethan exactly. England. Exactly. And so that overt homosexual behavior was very dangerous, especially to public figures because they were public figures and things became um, obvious and, yeah. Yeah, at I the mean, look same at, time. Look at that Marlowe play. Look at the Edward II, mm-hmm. the Marlowe play. And, of, and Richard era. II. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's, but there's serious, yeah. More than that, we have a different look at, at least in the theater, of the difference between men and women, because not by law, but by costume, all English plays, in all English plays, women were played by men and boys. Um, And so there's that juxtaposition of masculinity and femininity, and they seem to have some interchangeability that we don't think of as being real. Moreover, if if you may not want to include this, but if you look at Elizabethan drawings of what they believed male and female genitalia were, female genitalia were just male genitalia inverted. So that ah. the interior of the woman's body was the male genitals inverted. So that, which is interestingly apt, because as we know today, based on science, it's—I mean, actually, the reverse is true. That everyone starts out with something that more resembles, um, you know, a, a vagina, but then, you know, based on genetic information, the, you know, it's it's resolved one way or the other. So there's an interesting parallel there that they did pick up on. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you guys know it, but even into the 20th century, um, in a lot of traditional homes, boys were kept in in dresses until they were six or seven, Mm -hmm. until they got their first pair of pants at six or seven. Yep. And, um, you know, so that, that whole interchangeability between the genders, I think, is... Really interesting, but in the sonnets, it's fraught. It's there. It's all over the place. Um, Shakespeare's patron was a drop-dead, gorgeous young lord with with curls that cascaded down, blonde curls that cascaded down his back. He was breathtakingly beautiful. (laughs) And... Um, you know, there's one theory that the whole, the whole beginning of that was commissioned by someone else to have Shakespeare talk him into getting married, so that oh, they, wow. yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. So it's literally basically like, let me write you some really lavish, semi-romantic poetry. Yes, to so, encourage you, so that you go get a girlfriend. Go get a girlfriend. <laughs> Oh dang, that's really cool. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so fascinating, and yet we really don't know. Nobody knows. He dedicates it to someone. There are six or eight decent candidates. We don't know. And I think it's fun. I think it's fun, and I think it's brilliant Shakespeare because the best of Shakespeare is utterly specific, and utterly iconic at one and the same time. Yeah, that's just fascinating all around um, for just an abundance of different reasons. And I think, I mean, for me, one of the things that makes it interesting is the lack of um, historical specificity that whether or not this happened, because for me, it allows the audience to view them as a justifiably fictional entity and pay attention if, you know, if you so choose to the story that is unfolding in a way that is, you know, similar to maybe a series of epic poems or something like that, because that's, to me, really where they stand as as interesting. Like, yeah, it's great to speculate over who they were written about and all of that, but all of their own accord, 
they're just a really amazing character study, I think. But all of us picked sonnets because the sonnets spoke to us, particularly and personally. Exactly. Yep, yep. There's, there's a universality to it that comes along with the, the very nebulous idea of who the characters are that allows it to be incredibly incredibly poignant and representative of like a very wide spectrum of human experience. In fact, I think Shakespeare wrote the sonnet that I did about me, so there. <laughs> yeah, that's totally valid. It's funny, the one that I picked um, is actually the sonnet that, one of the things that we did in uh, my first year at conservatory was in voice and speech class, we picked a sonnet to focus on uh, performing all semester, just as kind of like a benchmark of where, how we were growing. Um, and so the, the one that I picked was that sonnet because I had done so much prior analysis and study on it. Um, and the reason I like it, um, it's just one of many representations in the, the sonnet cycle of the really interesting theme to me of talking about the immortality of words versus uh, the totally viable destruction of man-made objects and a return to nature. Um, that I think is just really poignantly powerful because uh, it's again like Phil said it's you know it's got some spirituality to it but it's not necessarily adhered to any particular spiritual set of beliefs because there is just that acknowledgement that nature can overtake what we create um, so really the most long-lasting impact that we can offer to the world is through expressing our love and our feelings and to me, that's just an innately really, really powerful theme for a lot of reasons. Um, so for th that's why, I mean, the sonnet that, that I decided to perform is, is special to me, because even though it's not necessarily unique in the sonnet cycle, it's the one that I really began to study that idea with and, like, really understand why that, why that, significant, that, why that idea was so significant. And it's, it's interesting to see that same concept picked, up, picked back up again so many times throughout the sonnets and see so many different more observations and iterations on the same like central ideas of, you know, we are temporary. Amen. Well, let's take a quick break from chatting and listen to a couple more performances. Here's Sonnet 107 performed by Shay Fitzgerald and Sonnet 116 performed by Sandra Boyton. to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool. Though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come, Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Not mine own fears, nor the prophetic soul of the wide world dreaming on things to come, can yet the lease of my true love control, supposed as forfeit to a confined doom. The mortal moon hath her eclipse endured, and the sad augurs mock their own presage. Incertainties now crown themselves assured, and peace proclaims olives of endless age. Now, with the drops of this most balmy time, my love looks fresh, and death to me subscribes. Since, spite of him, I'll live in this poor rhyme, while he insults o'er dull and speechless tribes. And thou, in this, shalt find thy monument, when tyrants' crests and tombs of brass are spent. Welcome back from the break. So, we've been talking about sonnets for, for a good time now, but I know what a lot of you might be thinking is, well, yes, but 
how does that relate to Shakespeare and his plays? Sandy, can you speak to that? I sure can. I can speak and speak and speak. And, and anyway, we think of Shakespeare's plays, those that are written in verse, and you would be surprised how many are written in prose. You would be as, as we talked about last week. Yeah. Much do. Yeah. Or or as you like it. Yeah. Um, the other play we're doing this summer. So, yeah. But you know, at any rate, we think of Shakespeare's plays in blank verse. That's unrhymed, iambic, pentameter, ten beat line, pa bump, pa bump, pa bump, pa bump, pa bump, plugging and chugging along. But Shakespeare wrote many plays in heroic couplets. That's rhymed iambic pentameter, large swaths of Romeo and Juliet, and of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream are rhymed couplets that just track right along. Um, there wow. are some yeah. tetrameter um, writing uh, in measure for measure. The Duke flips into this long speech in an odd rhythm that I, I don't understand, but he doesn't. Um, and when Shakespeare was really, and I think showing off, hi, I'm the best poet in the land, here you go, he'd incorporate sonnets into the dialogue of plays oh, yeah. so that, that people would share the lines. And in fact, when Romeo and Juliet meet at the Capulet's party, there's that whole stuff about hands and pilgrims, and if you look at it, that's a shared sonnet. And it's oh, amazing. That's so sweet, yeah. especially because there's such a romantic form of poetry. Like, that says so much about what Romeo and Juliet is. Because it really is just the sweetest story up until it's horrifying. Like... <laughs> You know, it, it's just, but if you look at it, if you step back and you look at it like a director or like a like somebody who plays with Shakespeare all the time, or or I suppose like a conductor, you look at it and say, and say well, look at that man show off. How many things can you incorporate into this one moment? And oh, the moment is sublime, sublime as the as those two children fall in love with each other and are clever with each other and at least when I did it share their first kiss and don't know where the noses oh. go <laughs> they're so clever and so very clueless at the same time exactly and I think that kind of sweetness that can be incorporated into a sonnet is exactly the flavor of love that Huh, flavor of love. Um, <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that, um, that, uh, that I think the audiences of Romeo and Juliet really need to see in order for a play like that to hit at the end. Because if they're following along with that uplifting, absolute, be beautiful sweetness and riding that wave along with those two absolutely young lovers and like re reminiscing themselves on maybe what it was like to be in love. It's something that can just punch you right in the gut. <laughs> and I think that that in and of itself is a really powerful use of the sonnet form, for sure. And I was noticing the other night, the two-household speech is also totally a sonnet. Yes, absolutely. That's the prologue to yeah, the entire exactly. piece. There's another piece that we had used at, at conservatory, and I was just, you know, I just recite it for fun sometimes because I still know it like the back of my hand. And I was like, oh, hey, that's sonnet form. And it never occurred to me until literally this week when I was kind of paying more attention to that. As I said, he was showing off like crazy in Romeo and Juliet and, frankly, in Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're just... I mean, if they're going to look down on the playwrights, you might as well flex <laughs> Exactly. Oh. Yes. oh, he was he was flexing like crazy. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Oh. He was Vogue. Listen, though, he earned a good. He earned a good Vogue. He earned a good Vogue. He, he mastered. He mastered that craft, man. He was. He was doing it up like no other. It's kind of funny because it becomes a dead end, and then he takes language in a completely different yeah. direction. It sort of dead end. It dead ends there, and then it moves. Mm. Yeah, he's just got that that wheel of motion just kicking forward. It's yeah. there. It's, you know, Richard II and, and these two plays. 
And I'm a great fan of the language of Richard III, but it's not as coherent. He almost goes into such excess in Richard III that it's it's almost too much. It's just too like much. Like a little obtuse almost? It just, there's just beautiful passage after beautiful passage after beautiful passage after beautiful passage buried in scenes where they shouldn't be at all. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rob mm-hmm. is right. We all do have our favorite Richard, our, our preferred Richard. Well, Rob, you I mean, had, had a Richard. When you did, and I had a Richard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, Rob, when you <sighs> were in Richard with me, you had one of those speeches, which yeah, was... Yeah, I had Brackenberry. Right, but brilliant stuff. So beautiful that it couldn't be cut. So extraneous to the flow of the play. <laughs> like, I'm some guy that you never see again. I get murdered off screen and then yell at, a, yell at him as a ghost. That's it. <laughs> That's it. And and <sighs> as much as Brackenberry's reflections are interesting, are, they're beautiful. They're but they stop the play. Yeah, plot-wise, they're not they're not uh, offering a lot as it comes to Beauty advantage. becomes a flat line in Richard the <laughs> Third. Yeah. Well, I mean that does make a statement about Richard the Third. Yeah, it yes, definitely it does. does. Absolutely, absolutely. Vic, I would love to get back to you for a little bit. Um, what were some of the the performances that you've done that you felt? Uh, were really informed by or spoken spoken to in that way, in the way that Sandy's talking about. Oh. I know you've done like Measure and uh... yeah, Measure for Measure is probably the biggest one for me um, in terms of being able to uh, use. Oh, the uh, you and I have talked about this because we've both played Isabella and uh, all of yes. the fun there. Yes. Yeah, I would love to hear your insights. Gosh, oh my gosh, what a part! I would actually love to have seen you as God, I wish I could have seen you, right? We need to, like, do a show-off at some point. Just be like, we're gonna just Isabella off for, like, an afternoon. Isabella off, Yes, oh my god, Izzy Battle. Izzy Battle. Um, yeah, no, I mean, our production was very interesting because we had a switch-out at the uh, second, um, with, for our, our, our duke, we had Shane come in and be our duke, which I was I was so thankful that he was there um, to do that. He really saved our butts, and um, he's just fantastic, fantastic performer. And he loves he just loves the the text, and he loves Shakespeare so much, and it's obvious in his acting. Um, Could you yeah. tell, talk a little bit about um, particular instances of text that you found really informed informed your performances in, me- in Measure for Measure in particular? Um, definitely uh, the scene between Isabella and Angelo, where he essentially corners her um, and is like, Sis, you're gonna sleep with me. Because if you don't, I'm going to kill your brother. And if you don't, I'm going to say you did anyway. And no one's going to believe you. Because I've got the power and you've got nothing. Um, And, wow, Clarence was just fantastic in that. It was really interesting because we were uh, so different, just size-wise. So it was really like a power struggle because Clarence is so tiny. I love him so much, <laughs> but I could like break him in half if this was like a real fight. Um, but it was really interesting. And he was able, he really was able to like, you know, use the words to just beat that character down in that moment. Um, and, you know, probably my, my favorite line from that chunk of text is like, you know, did I tell this who would believe mm-hmm. me? Um, she, oh, she really was just like at her absolute, like, lowest yeah, point for sure. but still had uh you know a fire to go out there and be like you know what i don't know what i'm gonna do but i'm gonna yeah. do something that necessity um, to make a choice yeah and that like so many sh- exactly. I mean, with the shakespeare and character it's that's the interesting thing about them is that every character fundamentally needs to make a choice at some point there's none of his characters nope. that, that really float along you know and don't don't do much by way mm-hmm. of action just by nature of the way that that he writes. Um, yes, yes. Yes, because even not making a choice is a choice. Is a choice. Exactly. Um, Rush taught us something. <laughs> For sure. Sandy, um, 
I, you had brought up Measure for Measure earlier. Um, what about Measure for Measure, uh, I guess, feels relevant for you in the context of, of um, sonnets and, and this particular period of Shakespeare's writing? Measure for Measure is a contrast to the whole world of the sonnets. When you deal with the sonnets, you are dealing with what's on the page, words on the page, there's nothing else. It's all on the page. When you deal with that middle period of plays, I think Measure for Measure is the most difficult of this bunch, and it's difficult. You're dealing with meaning that has to be carried without words. There are so many spots in that play where there's such great latitude for the actor who is very often stuck on stage for long periods of time with nothing prescribed in the text to do. It is the most interesting thing to watch, to watch as those choices of how one occupies one's brain and time and space come together to create a second texture of grander narrative than just the words. And I think for me, by directing that play, I realized how often you have to pay really strong attention to the choices that the actors make that are given to them by the text and indicated in the text, but not specified. Right, 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 right. It's like um, Mike kind of talked about in the first episode a little bit um, when it comes to uh, analyzing text and going back through again and noticing verse indications of um, that something has occurred and that the text is, for, is informing you about some kind of uh, response or, or reality or um, realization that your character may have had, and it may not be uh, necessarily obvious to you on the first pass, but paying attention to those little hiccups in the verse um, is something that can lead you as an actor to understanding that there is a change for you happening in that moment. Absolutely. And it, it can be even huger than that. When we go back to Measure for Measure, Isabella and her brother Claudio. Shakespeare does not tell us who's the yeah. leader. Ever. Yeah. And in a in a span of about five years, I directed Vicky and Clarence in uh, Vicky and Clarence and Johnny McIntosh as Claudio. And clearly Vicky was the older sister. Clearly. When I did it about five years later at Siena, Kelly Rosemary was clearly the little sister to a five or six years older Claudio. And the play changes materially by that simple fact of casting, and Shakespeare does not tell you what to do. So even though, you know, there are all of these ideas of, well, Shakespeare is giving you everything in the text, there's structure there, but there is also a lot of leeway that I think people don't, don't necessarily always realize, that, that you can use the text as such an, a fantastic structural tool and then at the same time still be allowed the flexibility to make so many choices of your own accord. There's, there's, there is such latitude in how that text works. In the same play, the Duke is never given any age. You could play him in his 80s, and that would be one mm. creepy piece. <laughs> yeah. And you can play him in his late 20s, and that would be equally as creepy. And it's one of those wonderful parts that a good character actor can play for his entire yeah. life. Wow. Sandy, will you talk about um, the end of Measure for Measure? Because I know when we did it, um, you had talked to Shane and myself about like whether or not Isabella chooses, you know, to go off with uh, the Duke at the end after he asks her to marry him. Um, and I always, I always found that really interesting. That has kind of haunted me, you know, for all these years. <laughs> and in fact, when, we, when I did it with Kelly Rose and Shane Camaris, the, the end was entirely different, entirely different, because there was a physical relationship between the two of them that had come from something that happened earlier. 
and there was a whole sort of physical twist on it. So, yeah, um, circumstances totally changed she, given the actors involved. She mm -hmm. played Isabella as much angrier and physically angrier. And when, when she said she was going to go kill Angelo, she went off to do it. She took off. And the Duke had to stop her, physically stop her. And one night in rehearsal, they fell. And he fell on top of her. And I looked at the two of them and I said, can you keep that? Can you do that every night without killing each other? Oh, wow. Wow. And that color, and they could, and they did, and that colored the end of the show. And because all of a sudden, the physicality of sexuality, she'd been forced to that spot. Mm. Wow. I would never have gone there without that mistake. But it worked really well. It's so great how errors can really influence things like that. But it's still perfect. Absolutely. Because it doesn't run at all counter to the text. It was just yeah. there. It's like, what do you do with the provost? He his never has any exits called. <laughs> yes. I love it. What do you do with the provost? I love your, t I yeah, I I love your take on that. Is oh. that you just, right, Sandy, you just leave him on stage the whole time? Uh, it's more than yeah. that, way more than that. Yes, I leave him on stage, but I don't just leave him there getting drunk or falling asleep. He's watching and listening and reacting. Ah, how cool. And what that does is we have an everyman character then on the stage who helps the audience understand what's going on or at least what a reasonable man would think about what's going on. And it's really interesting. Both times I've done that, the provost has been the most important character in the yeah, play. Yeah, because again, he, I mean, he's a, he harkens back to that same universality that, you know, we were talking about with the sonnets. But this is absolutely 100% opposite of the sonnets. Yeah, very much the so. Sonnets, it's on the mm -hmm. page. It's on mm -hmm. the page, and it's as much for the eye as for the ear, although both are important. The sonnets are... In fact, without that strong visual and complementary action context, they right, stay right. on the page. The other thing is, if you perform them out loud, of course, then you get all the auditory stuff of the English language stuff that the critic Stephen Booth would have said is the glue that keeps Shakespeare's verse and sonnets and lines and plays together, this interplay of auditory repetition. And that's, that is a longer topic for another time. But the sonnets make condense entire stories into 14 lines on the page and in your ear. Before we head off, I think we should hear one last goodbye from each of our friends here today, starting at the top with Vicky. Ooh, I'm at the top. Thanks for listening, friends. Thank you, Sandy, for such an interesting conversation. I had a blast. All right. And Sandy, do you have anything to say to our listeners before we go? Well, thank you for listening to me. It's always a delight to be able to talk about Shakespeare and the early modern period to people who want to listen. Have a nice thank night. so much, both Sandy and Vicki. You both have such fantastic insight about working with text. Um, and I've loved getting to witness the conversation uh, that you guys have been having tonight and participate a little bit. Um, that's been awesome. So thank you so much for being here and thank you again to everyone listening in. Rob, how about you? Okay. Um, well, I'd like to extend a giant thank you to everyone that's read sonnets for us tonight. That includes Radliachi, Phil, Shay, Sandy, Shane, and Vicky. You were all wonderful we couldn't make this podcast without you. Aw, thank you, Rob. We couldn't make it without you. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Phil. <laughs> I, I just want to thank everybody for coming. It, it was great to have all of you. This is, you know, such a, a great tool to have during these um, dark times where there's no theater. 
Um, and we're trying to create this audio theater that I hope our listeners are really enjoying. Um, it's just, it's, it's a blast every week to have new guests and to hear what they have to say about Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. To close off this evening, please enjoy Sonnet 130 performed by Shane Suspenkowski and Sonnet 140, performed by art spotlight artist, Victoria Benkowski. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress when she walks treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love is rare, as any she belied with false compare. as thou art cruel. Do not press my tongue-tied patience with too much disdain. Less sorrow than me words, and words express the manner of my pity-wanting pain. If I might teach thee wit, better it were, though not to love, yet love to tell me so, as testy sick men when their deaths be near. No news but health from their physicians know. For if I should despair, I should grow mad, and in my madness might speak ill of thee. Now this ill-resting world is grown so bad, mad slanderers by mad ears believe it be. That I may not be so, nor thou belied, bear thine eyes straight, though thy proud heart go wide. Tune in next week for all new conversation and content. You can also visit our website at willkempsplayers.com, shoot us an email at weeklybardcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at willkempplayers. We'll be back soon. For tonight, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Good night.